Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hope. This is where you get to hear how to feel happy, balanced, and worthwhile. How to make that lonely ache vanish and feel empowered, confident, and secure. I'm Lauren Abrams, and today we're talking to the visionary business and personal success story and entrepreneur, Mike Alden. Mike's a best-selling author, lawyer, podcast host, and speaker. He's been named as one of Boston's 40 Under 40. He's written so many books, but success was not handed to Mike. He grew up surrounded by death, jail, drugs, criminals, seeming unsurmountable odds. He did not have a role model. A counselor actually told him he was going to be nothing. Determination came from within and it still does. He's all about work and being your best. He had a lot to prove coming from where he comes from and he works hard to be where he is today and he wants you to be your best too. I had so much fun talking to him when I was listening to the episode to edit it and see which parts to edit out. I couldn't edit any of it out. I just kept laughing, listening to it over again. So hopefully you'll enjoy this as much as I did. Both times I listened to it through again. It's just absolutely one of my favorites. And it is so inspiring and gives such a wealth and plethora of information. Hopefully it helps you and inspires you as much as it does me. Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hope, Mike Alden. Wow. Thank you so much uh, for having me. I appreciate that. And uh, it sounds like I've actually done some kind of cool things in my life, I think. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, how many books have you written? And I believe you have a new book coming out. Is that right? It's interesting you say that. Uh, so I've written six and I have one now called Bestseller Secrets that uh, it's a it's more of the self-published route. And it's really more for authors who are really kind of interested in uh, marketing their books, because with my other books that I've written, I've literally spent millions of dollars marketing my books. And so a lot of people a lot of authors, you know, they have no idea what to do with it. Most uh, authors have no idea what to do with it, and most publishers don't know what to do. So that book is out now. Uh, but I, but when you say I have one coming, I'm actually in the middle of writing a new one that I haven't even talked about publicly. So I do have another one that's coming out as well. And what's when that should... one about? <clears throat> so that was actually the title of that is called Connection Capital. And uh, the premise is, is, is pretty simple, but where I show people that uh, it, it truly is your network that is in fact your net worth. And I show people the differences between networking and actually and building connection capital and how you can literally take, uh, you could start with nothing, no money, but you can build a life and you can build a business by the connections that you make. In fact, I, I start out telling a story of just one individual that I met at an event years and years and years ago. And that one meeting uh, that was at a little tiny little bar in Vegas at a trade show has changed my life. And it's not only changed my life, but it changed thousands of people's lives all over the world from that one meeting. But it, it didn't happen just because we met. It's because we, we built a connection and that connection became ultimately capital for me. What was the meeting? How did, how did one connection turn into something more than that? Because people meet people all over, well, not during COVID, yeah. but people meet people all the time. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a great question. You know, so we, we uh, I, I kind of opened the book up and, and talk a little bit about that, that kind of chance meeting. I was uh, practicing law. I was working for a company. It was general counsel, of this company. And it was the, it was a networking event, a cocktail event that was free. The food was free. The drinks were free. And so myself and uh, another friend of mine that worked at the company, we went there and we didn't know anybody, but a gentleman came up to me and introduced himself. His name is Mark Bigelow. He's actually lives out your way in uh, Santa Monica. Actually, he lives in Palm Desert, actually, uh, but his offices are in Santa Monica. And he just introduced himself and he says, my name is Mark Bigelow. He's older than me. He says, this is what I do. And then that just turned into a friendship, like almost instantly. And then it just developed over time 
to where where we begin to do business together with my old company where I, I introduced his company to my existing company that generated literally tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars for my old company. And it has done the same for me, but really the kind of the key thing to answer your question, like what changed, like how did that really happen is, is I developed a real relationship with him outside of business. And I was interested in his life. He was interested in my life. He's an interesting person. I'm an interesting person. I can pretty much connect with anybody in all walks of life. And that's what I show people, you know, you know, if you grew up wealthy, uh, you can connect with people that grew up poor. I happen to grow up poor, right? So I started from the bottom and I've been able to connect with people on the top, but going from both sides of the spectrum is hard to do uh, if you don't really, if you don't understand other people's lifestyles and the way they think. And so I've just been able to empathize with other people and connect with other people on a, on a more personal level. And when you're able to connect with people on a personal level, then it can in fact turn into business. And there's also, it's a delicate situation when you start doing business with friends, but if you you truly are able to connect with them in so many different ways, it actually makes it a lot easier. How do you get to where you can get to that deeper level and it's just not name, rank, and serial number? Yeah. I mean, so like I said, you know, you become generally interested in their life. You become generally interested in what they're doing, their family, their, 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 their friends that, you know, do they have pets? You know, what's their upbringing? Where are they from? And just listen to them. And, you know, I, I'm also a proponent of learning from others that have done things uh, better than me and been doing things longer than me. My friend, Mark, that I'm talking about, he's, he's older than me. He's had some great success. His business background didn't start out in the world of direct response. It actually started out in the fashion world. And so he had some really interesting stories about that world and, and you know, dealing with textiles and, and totally unrelated to the business that we're in together than the world that we did business together. But it was just interesting to me. And then over time, when you start to develop a relationship like that, and you can then ask ask them for things like, Hey, my first book is called ask more, get more. And so when, when, when I knew that Mark was the most connected person I had ever met at that time, I would say, Hey, Mark, you know, can you connect me with so-and-so, you know? And he would say, sure. And he would connect me with so-and-so with no expectations of any sort of compensation in return. Right. And so that's also another thing too. When you start initially starting out a relationship where you're going to exchange money back and forth for whatever it is, it's kind of hard to develop a friendship. So what I like to do is, is and by the way, and I'm not, this isn't like really like methodical or systematic or anything like, 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 Hey, ask them about their puppy. And then, and then, you know, see, talk, let's talk about their wife. No, it's just, you, you become, you, you do what human beings do. You have conversations and you talk to each other and you learn about each other uh, in the book connection capital. I do talk about, you know, some of the things that you can do, but it's more about that, that deep connection that we all should have as humans. You and I are connecting here over zoom and over, you know, over this podcast medium, right. Of, of sound. Uh, and so the way people connect is a little bit different, but it's, it's still the same thing. Like we have to connect to grow. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is, that's what being human is. It's, it's necessary to have that. I mean, it's, we connect through our stories through what it is when, when I hear about, it was when actually that I saw that you had struggled as a, as a youngster and that you came from nothing and built yourself up and, and all that. I was like, oh, wait, I did too. I was like, oh, I, ha I have to interview you. I want to hear about your struggles, how you overcame them, how you got to where you were. Like, that's 52 weeks of hope. Like, what's the hardest thing you overcame? How'd you do it? How can you give hope to others? I mean, that, that was it. I was like, I want to hear your story. It's how, it's how you connect. 
Well, that's the thing too, too. When you know, you, you find commonality, right? So, you know, I, I, I'm a believer that anybody can find a commonality with anybody. So, you know, if you're, if, if there's a homeless man on the street uh, and there's a billionaire, there's some, they're there, they have some commonality somewhere. And so when you, when you recognize that you can in fact connect with people on so many different levels and you do kind of search for that and do try to figure out like, how can, you know, see a lot of people like when they climb the ranks and they have success in business or, or in just in life or what have you, or, or they grow up in different socioeconomic, you know, kind of uh, situations where, you know, wealthy and middle-class and lower middle-class and poor and, and in the poverty level, you know, we're all human, right? And the old saying, we all put our pants on one leg at a time and we, and we all go to bed and wake up in the morning and we all do a lot of things. And so if you start there, like on the most basic level, like, Hey, we're all human. You know, I had a friend tell me, he said, Hey, look, you know what? We all, you know, you know, we all have to, we, we all have to pee, right? <laughs> it's all of us, male, female, doesn't matter, right? We all do that. So it's kind of, it's kind of silly to think like that. But when you can think about the fact that we are in fact human, right? And we're, let's start there. And then, and then again, uh, being able to, to be genuinely interested in people, you know, I don't know that everybody can, I don't know that everybody's born with this type of skill, but it can be taught to be able, because a lot of people, See, like right now I'm the guest of your show, right? So as the guest of the show, I'm going to do most of the talking. That's just the way it works, right? Uh, in this type of scenario. But when I interview other people, they're the ones doing the most, the most of the talking. And I'm sure it's the same way when, you, when you're on other people's podcasts. So, so we also understand that there is a dynamic there. And my point of that is, is that I'm not talking right now just because I want to hear my voice. But there are a lot of people that do. They just don't shut the fuck up. They, like, they, yo, you know, no, listen, man, let learn from these other people, like listen to these other people's stories, like you said, because it's interesting because, you know, when we started this podcast, I know that you sent over, I didn't even read what you sent over because I don't need to necessarily read what people are sending over because I know my life and, and, and I know what I need to talk about. And, and, and I know that it, if it, if it, if we're dealing with hope and 52 weeks of hope that, that it's easy for me. Right. And so let's just talk. So we're having a conversation right now and, and there's no ulterior motive. I mean, maybe there is, but I don't think that there is no. uh, other than just building, you know, cool content and relationships. Like right now you and I are building a relationship. It's simple. Like it's, it's, it's already happened. Right. And how far we come, we go along in this relationship, we don't, we'll never know, but you know, who knows? And so it's, uh, it's an interesting concept and I, and I'm having fun, uh, you know, writing it and, and talking about it, obviously. Yeah, that, it, it's great. Now, what made you, did you always want to be a writer? What made you write your first book? And, and is there a natural synchronicity from your first book to your upcoming seventh? <laughs> kind and of. I'm sure there'll be an eighth and a ninth, right? <laughs> You know, it's funny, the, the first book, Ask More, Get More, I mean, the title itself is awesome. I'm just going to say that, you know, the concept is awesome. Uh, I wrote that in 2014. And there's been some other books that have come out, like literally a book called Ask More. I'm a lawyer. I saw another book called Ask More. And you can't trademark the title of a book, unfortunately. And then another book called Ask, you know, but here's the thing about Ask More, Get More. And I realized I did stand up comedy for three years. And I uh, actually performed at the LA Improv and in in over on the Third Street Promenade called the uh, 54th West street or something like that. There's a big comedy club over there. I realized when I was doing comedy, I, I had a, I had a bit that was actually in the movie. Uh, this is 40. And I freaked out. I was like, Oh my God, did I hear that there? Did I hear that in the movie? Did I see that in the movie? So I went back and I, and I looked at it and I realized, no, no, I didn't see it. And I didn't hear it. And it was actually, it was a story about my, about my life. 
and I called up on all my comedy friends and I was really into comedy. Like I said, I performed out there and I was just really into it. And a buddy of mine said, Mike, it's already been done. Like whatever it is, you, whatever it is you think, I don't care what it is. It's already been done. So it's the same thing with my books, right? So I write this book, ask more, get more. And you know, the concepts are, you know, the title again, just tells you pretty much everything. Right. But I wasn't the first person to think about that. And the things that I'm talking about are the things that I, that I've, you know, that I've learned from others. So you know, when I started writing the book, though, I did realize that there are a lot of differences between me and the people that I grew up with. You know, I grew up in a really difficult situation, surrounded by crime, drugs and violence. You know, my mother's HIV positive. My stepfather died of AIDS. My father was addicted to coke. One of my brothers died of an overdose. Another brother did time in prison. Another brother was in rehab. My stepmother just just died uh, two years ago um, of an overdose. Kid I grew up with in jail for life for murder. And, and so that's just the beginning. Right. And so but so all the kids that grew up with me, most, most of them, there's a couple that, that made it out. And then family members, a lot of family members, you heard what happened to most of them. We all had the same situation. Like, why am I different? Like, what makes me different? And so I started writing that stuff down and really, you know, learned one of the things that I realized is I just think a little bit differently. And how did that come about? Was it a, it was it divine intervention? No, I don't think it was divine intervention. I just think there was a, there was a, like a aha moment or, or what they call an ignition moment in my life where I was like, I'm either going to be a criminal or a lawyer, right? And and I decided, and I was both, and I am still a lawyer. Um, but I, you know, when I was a kid, I was a punk. I broke the law. I did really bad things. So that book, Ask More, Get More, talks a lot about my life, but it also talks about the principles of just success that I've learned from others. And then when you asked about my other ones, I didn't have a plan to write my other books. They just came to me. And this book, Connection Capital, that I'm writing right now, and I'm not even exactly sure when it'll be out. I have a couple different publishers that are kind of, you know, courting me. And, you know, it's something that I've done really ultimately to build my life. And that one, that one interaction that started with that networking first with that, my friend, Mark Bigelow has changed my life forever. And so when, when you can understand that and it's a powerful thing. And so a lot of people are introverts, right? Like we don't want to meet others or we don't want to go to events. You know, I was talking to my, I call my girlfriend, but we, I mean, we've been together forever and we own a house together and everything else. And we're just not technically married. And, you know, when we would go to Vegas for these trade shows, when we were kind of probably shouldn't, because we didn't have the money and I would bring five people and it cost, you know, all in probably 20 grand or something. I would always say to her then I go, it's that one connection. It's that one person that we're going to meet. So when people start to think about that, when you do connect with people, how it can, in fact, not only change your life, but others, it's important to recognize that uh, as humans, in order to grow, like we need to connect. Yeah, that's that whole thing about if you stay inside, you you can you might miss out on that miracle, that <laughs> that thing that could happen that could change your life. The one, or as you're saying it, the one person that could introduce you to somebody. Yeah, like I, I don't guess. know a lot about you, but I'm sure we're going to learn at some point. And I have no idea. I didn't even know you were in LA. I don't know who you're connected to. Like right now, I don't. Because right now it's probably not the, the, the setting to do that in. But at some point we're going to have that conversation and you're going to be like, oh, I know so-and-so. I'm like, oh, well, you know, so that's I cool know. because I've been trying to connect with so-and-so and I'd love to be able to talk to them. And you might say the same thing to me. And then before you know it, our relationship is blooming and we have no idea where it's going. So the concept of connection capital to people like you and me is not a new concept and it's not, not, you know, not a novel idea, but to a lot of people it is. Yeah. The people that I grew up with that are that were that are still stuck in the projects mentally and physically, um, they don't understand that, hey, you know, let's ask for more 
and let's connect with other people. Let's go outside of the projects. You know, that that's another big part of my life where I was able to get outside of the projects and see other people and, and connect with other people and be like, wow, like I would go into what I thought were the rich neighborhoods. They were just middle-class neighborhoods and see what it was like to live in a home with a mom and a dad and their refrigerator was full and they had two cars and they had a pool. And I was like, these people are crazy rich. No, they just, they just, you know, they were just doing things a little bit differently. And then you even connect with them or their parents and be like, Hey, like, how'd you, like, I had a friend, his, uh, he lived in this neighborhood that I, the neighborhood that I just aspired, like I wanted to live in that neighborhood. And, and, and I would go there. There's a couple of things I noticed. One is a massive house and a, and a beautiful neighborhood, but I also noticed they had no furniture. They had like nothing there. So they shouldn't have even lived there. They just couldn't even afford to live there. But I remember being in high school, just kind of almost like interviewing his dad. Like, what do you do? Like, I don't know what you do for a living. And he, he was, he was a, essentially a, a door-to-door salesman. And, and I was like, wow. And you like, you built that you like, you live here. And he's like, yeah, you know, and, and then he taught me how to kind of speed read. I didn't even know that was a thing. And so like, those are like the, those moments again, where, because I was curious about people like, man, like Joan Rivers had a great show. It was called, how'd you get so rich? And you knock, she would knock on people's doors. And it seemed like, you know, it seemed like it was kind of like, you know, it was unscripted, you know, but it was cool. Like I, you drive by someone's house where you're out in, out in the hills and uh, Be- uh, Beverly Hills and Hollywood Hills. <laughs> like, man, you drive, I've been there, right? You live there, but you drive past these people's houses. I know there's a lot of actors and whatever, but it's like, what the fuck does that guy do? <laughs> you know what I mean, like, I want to interview him like I, or her, like, I want to know like how they got there, you know, here where I'm from. It's funny. So I'm in Beverly, Mass. Beverly Hills was actually found from a guy here in, in Beverly, Mass interesting little tidbit and here it's all a lot of old money you know and i've talked to people in some of the in some of the massive houses here and said yeah what do you do and and it's interesting just to hear people's lives so you know kind of going down a rabbit hole here but i'm 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 always generally interested in other people so did that make you when you your friend in high school's dad when he was telling you i've been sales did that make you i want to be a salesperson is that i didn't even really know what that was in marketing same thing like i didn't even know that there was such a degree in college as marketing i didn't understand that when i was selling lemonade you know and i franchised it essentially in the summer or when i would go door to door and sell chocolate bars for my school like i didn't realize that that was sales and marketing and i didn't no one really taught that to me no it didn't uh, actually in fact when i first got into sales i sold cars right out of college and i did not want to do that i had such a negative perception of that like everybody does right they oh, car salesman use car salesman those are the bad people blah 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 the reason why they think that way is because they don't understand it they don't understand that we're all being all being sold something you know you sold me on coming on your podcast right and and just by connecting with me you know and, and there was a sale that happened and there was no money that's going back and forth but you sold me on it and i do the same thing all day long and so when people realize that being sold is something that we do again as humans all day long in your kind of you feel you feel this kind of uneasy feeling of being sold because nobody likes to be sold but also recognize that you are being sold like your kids sell you on why, you know, uh, they want to go to the movies or why they want to take the car and you either in the sale either happens or it doesn't. And then if they say no, then they give you a rebuttal. Well, mom, you know, you know, so, so like we're, we're always being sold. And just because money doesn't go back and forth doesn't mean you're not being sold. And so I did realize that, uh, you know, in my early twenties about sales and recognizing that 
to be successful in life, you need to really know how to sell and not be afraid of it. And by the way, like I still like get nervous when I'm selling stuff to people. And if you don't, then you're just probably not human. Yeah. How did you end up going to college? Football. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I graduated with a one nine GPA out of high school, but I was also class president and captain of the football team. And I turned my life around from being that punk kid who used to get in the fights all day long and arrested when I was younger and, and just did kind of bad things, but I, I, I didn't go too far. I also did. I also didn't do any drugs. I drank and I probably shouldn't I'm underage, of course, but I didn't do any drugs. All my friends that started to cross that line of smoking weed back then, you know, it was a different culture back then. And then, uh, you know, they progressed to uh, like psychedelics and stuff like that. It just wasn't my thing, thankfully. And then also like pills and stuff like, uh, you know, here in New England, it's everywhere, but the opioid, you know, epidemic was pretty bad up here in this area. And a lot of it was coming in, we're, we're into Gloucester, Massachusetts, which is, uh, which was decimated by kind of the opioid uh, epidemic. So I was pretty lucky that, that, just, that it wasn't my thing. I didn't. And even when I would have like, I had like, uh, you know, my wisdom teeth removed and they give you Vicodin or whatever. I can kind of get why people would like that instant feeling, but fortunately my body just reacted differently and I, I couldn't sleep. I was itchy, that whole thing. So, so I didn't do any drugs, you know? So that was like one thing where I was like, all right, well, you know, thank, I was really thankful for that. Yeah, that, that's good. Definitely. What prompted you to go to law school? So, you know, it's like, so sales I was wasn't a, kid. a hit. Sales was not a hit. Well, I majored in political science. Uh, and so I knew I wanted to be a lawyer and, and it was either first or second grade. You write down like, you know, what do you want to be? And it's like fireman, school teacher, doctor, nurse or whatever. I wrote down lawyer. Like, I don't even know how I knew what that was, probably because I had police in, in and around my neighborhood all the time. And I might've heard the term and maybe kind of recognized what it was. So I wrote that down and I knew I wanted to go to law school. And the other interesting thing, Lauren, is about higher education is, is that, you know, once you get to college, okay, everybody now has a college degree. So I was told in high school by my guidance counselor, this is what my guidance counselor told me. And I thank him for this, but I was really pissed then. He said, you know, Mike, because I had a one nine GPA, he said, you know, my college isn't for everybody. <laughs> And so I got into college because of football and I wouldn't, I didn't, I didn't have a, uh, I wasn't wildly successful as far as my grades, but they were good enough to get into law school, which is also super competitive. So for me, it was like that kid who had the chip on his shoulder. It was the next level. Okay. So I graduated college. Congratulations. So, uh, so doesn't everybody. So you have two choices. What are you going to do now? You're going to get your master's. Uh, you're going to go to medical school, you know, maybe you want to be a CPA or what have you, you know, I just knew that I wanted to be a lawyer. So, and I was on the bubble. So my great, I graduated with a 3.0 GPA. So that's just barely enough to, to even be looked at. And like, like 3.0 to like four decimal points, like 3.0, like one, whatever. It was like exactly a 3.0. So it's just enough to get in. And I also did everything I could to get in. And I just knew I wanted to be a lawyer. So I got in, I went to Suffolk Law nights and I loved every minute of it. It was hard. I went to school for four years. I drove back and forth. I had a job full time. So it makes it even more difficult. But then at that level, now it's no joke. So now you're talking, I think it was like 65,000 a year money that I had to borrow. And I'm also competing with, so I'm in Boston. So Boston is, uh, you know, people can argue, but you know, Boston is, is probably uh, the city in the world that has, you know, probably some of the top lines in the world at, at any given time. You have MIT, you have Harvard, you have BC, you have BU and Northeastern. Just goes, it's, a, it's a big, big, you know, education hub. And so when I went to law school, I went to Springfield College and then I'm in class with MIT, Harvard, 
you know, BC and I went to Springfield college. And so when I got at that level, I was like, all right, now I need to level up even more. And I took it a lot more seriously and graduated in top half of my class was in the Dean's list three out of four years. And just, I just knew that's what I wanted to do. And so that's how I got into law school. And that's what that was kind of my experience in law school. How long did you practice? Like 10 years, you know, so I still keep my license active. Uh, I still, you know, kind of stay on top of things that are that that are a part of what we do. I mean, my company, we primarily market uh, products and services uh, on television and dietary supplements is our kind of our, our bread and butter. But, you know, we do obviously market books and, and sell uh, a ton of books. So uh, advertising law, uh, food and drug law, you know, as that evolves, we have a CBD company. So that's a bit of a kind of like gray area right now. And so we, we stay on top of that. I keep my license active and I, I loved it. I love practicing law, but I'm also an entrepreneur. Like I, you know, people always, I always, when I, when I meet new people, I say, well, I'm a lawyer by trade. And I, and I always, and I still do it sometimes. It's like, why am I doing that? Because I want to tell people, oh, I'm a lawyer. Hey, look at me, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I am, I'm a lawyer, but I'm an entrepreneur. But in my core, I'm, I'm really an entrepreneur and then a lawyer second. But I always tell people as an author, uh, I'm actually a marketer first and then an author. So practice for 10 years, started my business in 2008 and never looked back. So being a lawyer to give you credibility, <laughs> like, hey. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a little bit of that. There's a little bit of like F you to some people. Like, you know, I was told I should have been dead or in prison, you know? And so it's like, okay, well now, now I'm making more money than you. And, you know, the other thing too, when I, when I was presented with, uh, I was presented with the possibility of working like in the finance office when I sold cars and the owner's name is Bud Coglin. He was really successful. He was one of the top executives at Ford. He went to like, like me, grew up tough. He went to BC and Columbia, uh, got his master's from Columbia. And he said, Mike, just, you know, why don't you work for me in the finance office and get your master's in like finance or something, you know, and grow here. And maybe you can get at your own dealership. And, you know, and it, it didn't seem like crazy to me. And I was, I considered it, but I also knew that I wanted to go to law school. See, I never want to look back on life. I'm 46 now. I never want to look back on life and say, man, if I had only done that, if I had only maybe just pursued it a little bit just to see, you know, cause you could go to law school the first year and realize it's not for you. And okay, then you just find something else. And so I just never wanted to look back on life and, and say that. Right. And so, but I also knew that when you graduate law school, you're in the top 1% in the world of, of academia. Okay. So, uh, and, and also it's something that you, once you pass the bar exam, unless you <laughs> do something crazy, it's nothing, no one can ever take it away from you. And so that was really important to me as well to be at that level and also the education side of things. So I knew that when I went to law school that I could, I could essentially focus on business, which I did do. I focused on business and corporate law and contracts and half of it, the other, other half was criminal stuff. Cause I have a, you know, kind of had a built-in client base with my family members and the kids I grew up with. Right. So I, I did that. And so that, that's why I decided to go to law school versus getting my MBA. Do you have a mentor or does your mentor keep changing as you get to the different levels? So as a lawyer, it's funny because I didn't know any lawyers. And when I was practicing law uh, and I was, I was lucky, it was in-house at a company. So we had outside counsel and I didn't know the guy, but I knew he was our outside counsel. I just called him up, introduced myself. I'm the new lawyer here. <laughs> and uh, he was kind of surprised that I was even there. And I said, look, man, uh, I need a mentor. So you're it. 
I mean, that's literally how it happened. He's like, uh, okay, so uh, cool. So as a young lawyer, by the way, they do that in a lot of states anyway, they pair you up. The bar association, each state usually does that for young lawyers. And a lot of times, depending on the state, they also have CLEs, continuing legal education. So you have to kind of like keep up on stuff. So he was like my first mentor. His name is Chris Robertson, still a great friend today. And he's a partner at a huge law firm uh, all, over the, all over the world, actually. He went to Harvard, as we would say. So he's wicked smart, as we would also say from Boston. So he was kind of like my first mentor, but I've had business mentors throughout the years. Yeah. And they do change a little bit. I don't pay for a coach. I had these people say, oh, do you pay for a coach? I'm like, I don't need to pay for a coach. You know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know, but I'm not going to pay some dude, you know, or chick or whatever. Pardon me if I'm being like a hundred grand a year or whatever it is to, to just tell me things that I already know. And so I, I can, I have friends that hold me accountable. And, th- and that's really the thing. Like I have really good friends. I'd be like, Hey Mike, you know, you know, maybe you shouldn't be doing that. Or maybe you should be doing this or Mike, you, you know, like what you're saying makes sense. And maybe you should pr- pursue that. Like those are the types of people that have helped kind of build me as, as a person uh, and, both professionally and, and personally. Is there a time in your life where you just felt really alone? Yeah, a lot. I mean, even today, you know, so the life of an entrepreneur is a lonely life. You know, when you think about the consequences of your decisions and and you think about, you know, the responsibility uh, of your business and the people that, you know, have families and mortgages and houses and kids and dogs and and school loans. And so that's a lonely place uh, when, when things are really going wrong because, uh, I live in what I like to call organized chaos. And it's always like that in my, in my life. When I'm doing 50 million a year or whether I'm doing 10 a year or five, it's pretty much the same. And so when I realized that too, I realized, well, do I need to do 50? Like, is that like, can I, am I going to feel the same way if I do 10? And also, can I keep maybe more, you know? So as a mentor, a mentor actually taught me that, but yeah, you know, look, the lonely moments and anybody's life are there. But I'm also, uh, look, I, I go to therapy. I've been going to therapy my whole life, uh, you know, out your way in LA. I think it's a little bit more like people are open about it, but here now everybody's talking about, I was talking about it in 2014. I'm a practitioner of transcendental meditation. So, and those, in those lonely moments, you're, you're left with your thoughts, one's own thoughts. And when you're left with your thoughts, things can spiral out of control. And I've had full on panic attacks where I thought I was going to be put in the hospital. And that's when I learned transcendental meditation. That was a very lonely moment, very lonely moment. You're going to have them. And there are moments where I just want to curl up in the basement and just shut off the lights and just do nothing all day long. And by the way, I do it sometimes because there's also nothing wrong with that. But I'm also self-aware, like, hey, like if there's something wrong here, like really mentally, I'm so self-aware that I will go to my doctor and talk to them. Uh, if, you know, hey, look, is there something I need to do? Look, I'm, a, I'm kind of anti-medication for anything, for really for anything. But if, if you're going through an acute crisis, like a lot of people are right now, and you're self-medicating, however it is, that's the wrong thing to do. And that's, and you're, again, you're in a lonely moment. It's, it, and when we talk about being alone, it, it doesn't have, you don't have to be physically alone, right? So you can have people all around you, people understand, but mentally in your brain, you're alone. Like you, maybe there's something going on and you're afraid to talk about it. It's it, the great news is that it's becoming less of a stigma now, like this, you know, mental challenges, but we also, I also recognize at a very, uh, I wouldn't say young age, but within the past 10 years that, you know, happiness is something that, that I, I'm pursuing and, and I'm always pursuing, but I also realized after studying 
happiness and writing my second book and talking a little bit about that is that we're not born happy. Our brains aren't actually wired to be happy. And that's people like, what, what are you talking about? Just go ahead and Google it. You're just not because, because what you're designed to do is you're designed to survive, right? You know, we, we are, we are, we are animals, plain and simple. Right. And so what are we, why are we here? What, what, what's our main objective? Well, to procreate and survive. And so that's not a very happy thing, except the procreating part. <laughs> so you have that, so you have that kind of happy moment there. When you realize that happiness is something you have to work towards and you can work towards it, those lonely moments become a lot less lonely. Yeah. So, and you answered so much of my questions of what do you do? So therapy, meditation, talking to somebody and not keeping it in, not, not trying to deal with it yourself. You also made me think that it, it gives us perspective for when we're not lonely and maybe yeah. appreciation and gratitude and something to work. Uh, oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, you know, it, it, it sounds corny and a lot of people talk about it and, and there's memes and all this other stuff out there, but all the memes in the world and all the videos you can watch, you and I were talking about YouTube earlier and all these things you can, but you, you, you know, you have to take, become account, accountable for, for one's own life. And so if you're having those lonely moments, if your world does seem like it's, I call mine organized chaos, but if it's actual chaos, only you can, can uh, address it. And, you know, now look, I'm, I'm not talking about true clinical, like, depression or, um, you know, people suffer, who suffer with bipolar, because a lot of times they can't even, yeah. they can't even see it. No, I'm so not, it I'm not talking about that either. Yeah. yeah. I'm just talking about those dark moments that, that we all have. And so, and, and it, and, you know, and in that moment, if someone were to diagnose you, you might be clinically depressed, but it's not a long-term thing. So you just need to address it, you know, and you need to work at it. And, and, and I do, and I'm far from perfect. Like I didn't meditate today. Probably should have. It's now four o'clock Eastern standard time probably should have meditated. Didn't probably not going to. Okay. So does that mean I'm never going to meditate again? No, tomorrow I start over. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like just reset, you know? Uh, so I, I think that, you know, becoming self-aware is critical for anything you're doing in life. Yeah, absolutely. And I've said it a lot of times on my, on my podcast that I give myself a break, especially in this last year. Okay. Maybe my meditation is five or 10 minutes. It doesn't have to be long anymore. You know, like if just do it first thing in the morning. Better and, than zero. Yeah, absolutely. And so I've been on a challenge, this accountability thing with an accountability partner for the last couple of months. And we've committed to minus 10 minutes, which if you had told me that a couple of years ago when you know it was 30, 45 an hour every morning, you know, like, well, it depends on the age of my kids, but everything, everything seems kid dependent in a certain respect, but yeah, my, they're not that young anymore. So <laughs> now it's like, you want to meditate? No. And then, you know, they go and do their thing. <laughs> so I don't know. Do you have kids? I do. I have a, uh, call a little girl. She's not little anymore. She's soon to be 15 and, uh, she's amazing. Her name's Morgan and she's just the total rock star. I just love her and, to death. And do you spoil her to death with everything that you did not have as a child? Yeah. You're nodding your head. Yes. Yeah, okay. yeah. Pretty, pretty much. But I also, but here's the other thing too, how I parent would, you know, you, you know, how many kids you have Two. I have said? two. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, look, you know, no one there, you know, look, there are guides, but you know, no one really prepares you for being a mother. I remember just trying to like get, you know, advice. And I think my mom or dad said, you, you just figure it out. Right. So I treat, I treat my daughter uh, tr since pretty much since she was able to really understand things like, like, like a real person and not like a kid in, in just real life scenarios. And I involve her 
in, in my life. And even some of the things that m- most parents might not want to involve them in, for instance, like, you know, like when we would go to Florida, you know, every year or every vacation or Christmas or whatever, or wherever we're going to go, Vegas. And there were times where financially, even though I'm crushing it, like from compared to most people that it wouldn't, it just, it might not make sense because when I travel, like the, it's stupid money. Like we're not, we're not staying at the, you know, at like some dive hotel. So, so I would say to her, like, look, you know, here's the deal. Uh, daddy's going to close this deal. And uh, if I don't close the deal, we're not going. If I close, we'll go. So like, I, I so, and, and so she's, so she understands. And, and then, and then I have conversations, uh, business conversations around her, including conversations that get really heated sometimes. Uh, and she hears me and she listens to me because uh, my point of like, kind of going where I'm going with this is I think too many parents shield their kids from, from, from the real world, even to this day. And, and I, and it's, it's, it's really having a detrimental impact on society and how kids react and how they respond. And so my daughter is certainly not dealt with any adversities that the same types of adversities that I've had, like, you know, waking up in the morning, having no food in the fridge and, you know, and having the electricity being cut off and, you know, her mom's car getting repossessed or any of that stuff, like the stuff that I dealt with or getting beat up or shot at and like all the shit that I've dealt with. Right. But at the same time, I also, uh, I, I involve her in things that might be a little stressful for her to, about finances and, and, be, and making her aware that, Hey, look, you know, you can't just bang daddy's credit card for 20 bucks for on DoorDash just because you can. Let's talk about it. Like, do you really need to do that? And does, you know, and, and maybe let's only do it once. When in fact, I know I can do it all day long. And so I, I try to almost create adversity in a way. So, so she's also an athlete, right? And for me, that's so critical because you're going to lose. And as an athlete, you're going to learn how to lose. And so she's learned how to lose. And that's important because in life, you're going to lose over and over and over again. So I love athletics. Uh, she plays um, soccer, uh, basketball, and now tennis. And so she's, you know, she's been on soccer teams and lost. We've, she's on, been on club soccer teams. We'll travel, you know, four hours and we get to the game. And she, and she gets pulled out of the game and doesn't play the whole game. And she's pissed. Good. I'm glad she's pissed. But it's just a part of life. That's the way it is. You're going to get pulled out of the game. You're going to, you're not going to get put in the game when in fact you should have been put in the game. You're, you're, you're going to miss the winning shot. You're going to cause, you're going to cause the team to lose. These are all the things that just happen in real life. And so the adversities that I dealt with, uh, she'll never deal with, but you know, she is learning how to, you know, kind of how to work with a team, how to overcome those adversities, how to communicate with people uh, and also how to lose because it's important. People need to know how to lose. A lot of kids don't know how to lose, especially out in where you you live. You know, these kids just grow up like just ridiculous wealth and, and they don't understand like what it means to get there. You know, a lot of people see like kids of celebrities, but they also don't realize that most of the celebrities, they didn't, the celebrities didn't just didn't just happen for them overnight. You know what I mean? Like Brad Pitt didn't just all of a sudden wake up and become Brad Pitt. You know, he worked at it. And so, but his kids and the kids that he's adopted, you know, never ever see any of the stuff that, you know, kind of he, he went through. So it's interesting conversation. We could probably talk for hours about it, but I know you don't have all day. (laughs) Yeah, no, it it definitely is. And uh, well, my kids have seen, seen it all. And plus, I mentor kids in downtown LA with absolutely nothing, and they're involved in that too. So. Oh, cool! That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's really it's amazing. Is your life different than what you had imagined it would be? Is it just beyond? I mean, I know you put in first no, grade oh, because... that you were going to be a lawyer, but 
No, because I always knew that I was going to be rich, if that's you want to call it. They'll use that term or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like I just knew I told my told my aunt uh, when I was, I don't know, five or six that I was going to be a millionaire at 21. It took me to 34 to get there. And so, no, no, I'm not like, I'm not like amazed at where I'm at because I work my ass off and I get my ass kicked all day long and I take massive risks and I lose over and over and over again. But you know, it's those wins that, that make the difference. And so, no, I don't, I don't, I mean, where I'm at today is not necessarily where I want to be tomorrow. And I'm, you know, I'm always trying to climb. My mom said to me, you know, is it ever going to be enough? It's not about like accumulating things. You know, it's, it's, it is in a way like life is a, to me is, is a game or a sport. Like, okay. So I want at this level. Well, just like college, right? So you, or you go into college, you're a freshman, you're a junior, you're a sophomore, you're a junior, you're a senior. Now you're at the top and you got to start all over again. Same with high school. So, so it's like, you know, it's the progression of life. And, and, and to me, it's, it is a game uh, that has pretty big consequences if you, if you're wrong, but it's something that if you, if you really think it through and you understand the consequences, you can in fact win at the game of life. And that's what I'm trying to do. But the biggest thing for me is, is, is happiness. And in fact, I own a brand called Wicked Happy, like this hat, this hat that says grateful on it mm-hmm. it's for my, for my brand wicked happy, because when I, it, you know, when I, when I was really crushing it in revenue, I, I, a few years ago, I spoke at this event and there were all these kids selling t-shirts, kids like making like seven, 8 million bucks a year revenue. And I was like, man, it blew my mind. And I was like, I said to a lawyer who works for me, who's now my partner in this deal. I said, I just want to be wicked happy. We're from Boston. So wicked's a thing. <laughs> and he's like, well, I, uh, my girlfriend said, uh, she goes, I think that that's a t-shirt. And because it was a t-shirt convention that, we're, that I was speaking at. And he said, I think it's a brand. And so, you know, the very essence of, of that brand is about happiness. And it's, we're not like, I'm not crushing it with a brand. I probably will. Uh, COVID obviously slowed it down. But for me, like the biggest thing about where I see my life now is I just want to be happy because I know what it's like not to be happy. And whether I'm sitting in my private home in the street that I live in, in this massive house, or if I'm in a condo in, in somewhere or whatever, as long as I'm truly happy and the people with me are happy, that's all I really care about. What challenge are you most proud of overcoming? Boy, there's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I would say one within the last 20 years was I missed the bar exam by one question. So when you miss the bar exam by one question, what happens is, is that you, it goes before committee and then, and then it gets, it gets reviewed like your whole, so the bar exams two days and they review everything. And you usually get brought up when it's that close. That's just, they just, what that's what they do, but it didn't happen to me. I actually got brought down. And so that was, you know, it's like a, a big giant kick in the nuts. Like, but at the same time, I, I didn't study. I was working. I studied for three weeks. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't put in the work. You know, I took a lot of risks. I, I, I decided that I wasn't going to study certain subjects that could possibly be in the bar exam because they can't put everything in the bar exam. So you kind of have to study for everything. And then you have to say, well, you even look at historically, this wasn't on the bar exam and the likelihood of this being on blah, blah, blah. So you take, you do take risks. And, but I, my risks were massive because I just didn't study. So the second time around, so when I got that letter in the mail that said, we, we regret to inform, by the way, I have uh, that framed around here somewhere. I took like a couple of days off and then I studied for 13 weeks straight for 10 hours a day. I took one day off and I crushed the bar exam the second time. The funny thing about it is, is that when you take the bar exam a second time, your chances of passing goes down dramatically. Yeah. So it's really bad. Yeah. 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 It's and true. so, and then, and then it gets worse as you, as, as it goes along. Successively worse. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. When California is the hardest state in the union to actually yeah. pass. Right. So, and it's, it was three days. They just switched it to two. We, 
after our second day, we would cuss out the rest of the country who was celebrating. Wait, hold on. You had said, wait, I didn't realize a you were third a third day. Yeah, I'm a lawyer. Oh, I didn't realize. We didn't know. See, again, so you know, we didn't know. So yeah. I, I would, yeah, you guys, it's three days for you, right? Yeah, it was. They just switched it last year. This year, I don't know. They just changed it to two days, like the rest of the country. Right. Yeah, it was it, three days. Yeah, it's it's and people don't understand that. You know, it, it's one of the most difficult things there is. You know, you get the you know they so you got the medical boards, you got uh, you got law school, and then uh, the CPA exam. So we can argue about which is harder. But either way, it's 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 really hard. So so when I you know so so you, so you know what happens. So when you pass the bar exam, you get your score, right? So you get your score. It tells you it tells you your scores. Uh, excuse me. When you don't pass, when you pass the bar exam, you don't get your score. But here's the thing: I studied. And I'll tell you a quick story because you appreciate it. I didn't realize you were a lawyer, but you, I heard you say associates and I was like, I mean, so when I studying the first time, I had a good friend that I went to law school with and I, he had, like me the second time, he had already been studying for like 11 weeks. And, and I saw, we were studying at this local law school. It wasn't the law school we went to. And he told me that he had a photographic memory at that point. And I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, I can actually see my notes. I can go back and look at con law and I can just tell you, you know, what the commerce clause says like verbatim, or, or I can go back to property law and, or I can go back to wills and trusts and talk about, you know, what's the, the, the rule of perpetuity, uh, no interest, no interest shall vest within 20 years, whatever. So stuff I can't remember now, but he like, so you have a photographic, I'm like, no way. And he's like, yeah. And then I remember talking to him and being like, oh shit, like I'm, I'm screwed here, you know? And so the second time when I studied for 13 weeks straight, I retook all the classes, the Barbaries and these other ones they had to take. But I also took a, a, a writing course and on how to write essays for the bar exam, which is different than writing an essay for, for an actual exam in law school. It's just, it's just different. And it was like literally learning how to write, switch from writing righty to lefty. It was completely foreign to me. But the way this prof the professor taught it, by the way, he got disbarred actually, but so he had this class on how to do it and, I, but he got great results, always got great results. So when I went in day one, you know, the multiple choice, when I, at the end of day one, I, I was like, if I don't show up for day two, I'm still going to pass. Like, that's how confident I was. Like I, there wasn't even, there wasn't, there weren't, there was maybe like five or six questions that I was iffy on everything else. I was like, no problem. Uh, and then day two, same thing. I was just like, this is, you know, we're, we're good to go. It's funny. So now you're a lawyer. So I'll tell you day, the first, the first time the, on the, the second question uh, was about secure transactions. And I knew nothing about secure transactions. I knew the term, <laughs> but I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know about commercial paper. I didn't know that was a whole, the whole question was about some woman. She goes into the bank. She passes a check. Blah blah blah. And I, you can't bullshit on the bar exam. It's just you're right. Yeah. And so that was really the that was the question. I think that really screwed me. The funny part about that story is is that second time around, uh, I knew it cold. But when I when I became an in house counsel for this company, they didn't really have a lot of money, but they had money in reserves and merchant reserves. So I figured out a way to secure future loans against those reserves. They, they didn't know it. And so I had just like one page notes. And so we were borrowing money uh, with all, that guy, Mark Bigelow, that I talked about earlier, his company loaned us like tens of millions of dollars over, over the years based off of a secured transaction. Right? So, <laughs> it, so, so, so it's interesting where life leads you, right? Because 
who knows if I would have even even studied that I probably would have never even studied. And by the way, I've done that with my business. So it's one of the ways I funded my business other than connection capital, because I process credit cards and they, when they process, they go into a reserve account and you can't touch it. It's like, uh, you know, it's like a savings account, but you can borrow against it if you know how to do it. And if I hadn't missed the bar exam the first time, I probably would never know how to do it. So pretty interesting. I didn't know you were a lawyer. That's, that's crazy. How do I not know? Did, did you, did you, I don't think you told me. Probably not. <laughs> I don't know. Do you still practice? Yeah. That's, yeah, I do. Oh. oh, okay. What kind of law do you practice? Uh, plaintiff's employment. Oh, all right. Yeah. Huh. My ex-wife, we sued, we sued a company we worked together. We lost, we, we lost on a technicality. I didn't realize, I didn't realize this, that when there's a sexual harassment claim, there's a clock that ticks. I didn't realize that. And, uh, and she just literally fell outside of it, like within days. Mm. Of, of when it happened i mean it was pretty clear that what, what had happened but you know so yeah, a lot of the statutes change now yeah a lot. yeah yeah well california is a lot different yeah california is very employee friendly <laughs> yeah. massive masses too but uh yeah. yeah there was a the time started to tick on the day that you found out that the rule was then that the, the day that you found out that it that it that it had in fact happened or when it happened is when the clock starts to tick Right. I don't know if that's like that now, but that's what it was. It, it, it just depends. And a lot of the statutes now, it's all off the table. Do you have a message of hope that you would want to give? Yeah. You know, uh, I think that, you know, when we talked about those dark moments and those difficult times in life, and what I've realized is that when you go through these really kind of crazy events and these difficult events, I had a friend of mine that actually committed suicide recently. And I remember having a conversation with him about how chaotic my life was and the things that I was going through. And, and I was, it was a really difficult time. I got hurt really bad financially. I built this massive house and then I had to put it on the market. It was embarrassing. Like I built it, I was living in it for like a year and a half. And then all of a sudden I had to put it on the market. I would have made money if I had sold it. I ultimately didn't sell it, but you know, uh, he just said to me, Mike, you gotta be all right. And it was just so simple. He's like, you gotta be okay. He was older than me. And I'm like, what do you mean, man? He's like, look, you know, like if you, if you stay in the game, and you understand that this is like Les Brown was on my podcast and he says, Michael, it's the struggle that creates life. And so there is hope at the end of the tunnel. I think hope is, you know, I'm looking at your background. I think hope is important, but I'm going to say this and, and, and maybe somewhat, you know, kind of, I wouldn't say it, call it contradictory, but I'm also a realist. And, and also, you know, hope is one thing. You can just hope until the cows come home. But if you don't take any sort of action and do anything to follow up on the hope that you have or, or, or the positive mental attitude that you have, just thinking about being successful or just hoping that things are going to work out, it's not just going to work out. I, I, that's, I, I don't believe in that. And so I may be wrong and it may be something that people may be completely the antithesis of what you, of what you talk about on your show. But hope is important and it's something that you, you that you should have but i just want people to know that whatever it is you're going through business personal whatever you know i went through a divorce and the divorce was actually pretty easy but i went through a custody thing just recently it was bizarre we had been divorced for like 8 years and then it, it and it was it was horrific and we were like it's a long story but you know i just realized after talking to some people friends of mine that mike it's not going to be forever like when i had that panic attack and then i did go to my doctor he said mike it's not forever you know, so it just, just understand that whatever the difficult times you're going through, that hope will get you through, but also don't forget that you do need to do something about it in order to get you through that difficult and dark moment. Yeah, no, everything is about action. I, I don't know if it was just my last podcast where I said, I always talk, God doesn't drive parked cars. 
I have to take action. I can't sit in a corner and hope for anything. I have to, it's about the footwork. I have to do something. And I'm sorry for your loss with, there's been a lot of suicide. It just, it was pre-COVID. It was a couple of years ago and his wife had passed and he was a, I think he was kind of going down the path of Buddhism. And so he just believed that his, his life was a vessel, uh, his body was a vessel. And you know, it's a beautiful thing. If that's what he really thought, like he ended it because he thought he was going to be reunited with his wife. I hope he's right. And so, you know, it was, a, it was, it was really sad and yeah, and it hurt, it hurt me and it hurt a lot of people. But at the same time, I almost, in a way, it's a weird way to look at it. Like, I, I kind of think it's a beautiful thing because that's what he believed. And he was 57 years old and lived an amazing life and did some great things. And, and it sucks that he did that because he, you know, he kind of robbed the world, but he you know, didn't have kids, didn't have family. The only thing he had with his wife and me and, and my family, but you know, just kind of is what it is. And so, but he inspired me. And, and when he said that to me, he's like, Mike, it'll be okay. And I was like, all right. And I look up still to the, and I'm not really super religious, but I'm like, you know, man, like, his name's Jim. I'm like, Jim, can you, can you help me out here? Can you get me? <laughs> so, and maybe he is, who knows? Like, right. Who knows what the world is, you know, what's really going on out there in the universe, but yeah. So <laughs> thanks for that. Yeah, no, definitely. What is it that makes you feel really inspired today? Today? Like right now, like not, this not moment? Not in this moment, but generally. Yeah. You know, when people talk about being grateful and I really kind of embraced that term and just understood what it, what it meant, uh, I get inspired by the fact that I'm here and that, that, you know, by the luck of the draw and, and, you know, one in a billion chance that, that, that I made it on this planet, you know, literally from the second I was in the womb until I came out, I was, the, the cards were stacked against me. I had all sorts of medical issues when I was, when I was first born. And so the fact that I'm here uh, I'm alive. I have a family I, and I'm able to contribute to the world that inspires me. Uh, it's something again, like happiness, like being grateful is something you have to r remind yourself of. And so I'm inspired by the fact that uh, I can get up every day and, and do things when a lot of people can't, you know, so I get inspired by others, but I also I'm inspired by my own life that I'm that I'm here and able to just you know, look at my daughter and you know, call my wife, I call my girlfriend and my dogs and just like the little things like when people talk about stop and smell the roses. I don't like the smell of roses. <laughs> I don't know because they don't smell good. I don't know why I don't want to smell a rose. But when you really and I've done it, like when you really look at like a blade of grass and the color or when you're out in the woods and you're going for a walk or where you live, man, like you like when you walk you know, in Santa Monica on the beach there or in Newport beach or Malibu and just like, see how beautiful it is. Like that inspires me like, man, like I'm here. So let's figure something out and let's do something with it. Like that inspires me. Oh, that's great. That's a good note to uh, end on. Thank you so much for being a guest today for 52 weeks of hope. Well, thank you. Uh, you are great. And uh, I'm, I'm just happy to be here. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and take with you Mike's messages of persistence, courage, and humor. You can all use a lot of that going into the weeks ahead. And he's such a good example of you can achieve, achieve anything that we set our minds to. Be sure to tune in next week for another amazing episode with Hala Taha. She's the CEO of Yap Media. It's a podcast marketing agency for top podcasters, celebrities, and CEOs. It's projected to generate over a million dollars in revenue in her first year. She's super well-known for engaged following and influence on LinkedIn. She discusses next week her greatest accomplishments and how they always 
come on the heels of failure and how you can do whatever you set your mind to just like she's doing. She's amazing. People think she's just lucky, yet she talks about oh, how hard she works and her it's her grit and determination and how she focuses on the positive. She's a big believer in the secret. Remember that? And if you keep your eyes on the prize type of a mentality you, and just keep going, it's kind of exactly what I guess Mike Alden was just talking about, that you can achieve anything you want to achieve in life. So, it, I mean, she is absolutely amazing. I, it's just like Mike. I mean, these are just some of my favorite podcasts and people to talk to. I just could listen again and again. I probably will. If you're on Clubhouse, come and visit me. I have rooms there every Tuesday. And I also have now started the Hope Club. So be sure to follow me on there. Follow me on the podcast, 52 Weeks of Hope. And please leave us a positive review. Visit us at 52 Weeks of Hope. I can't wait to hear what you thought of today's podcast. So go ahead and drop me a line there at 52weeksofhope.com and send me your feedback. I'm Lauren Abrams. Thanks for listening.